welcome to Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me per use. Darcy. What's up? How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um, that's probably the only uh, laughter we're going to get in this episode, I, I think. Yeah, this, this, this is going to be a little heavy. It's a very serious one. We just want to give people yeah. just a kind of a trigger warning right away. We're going to talk about some very deep social issues. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it needs to be said. We need to talk about it. So let's get it out there. Let's jump into it. Well, well, first I want to talk about a little bit of, of uh, current news that we haven't brought up yet on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard about this, that the Golden State Killer, the alleged Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, is expected to plead guilty at the end of this month to a string of murders in California in exchange wow. for removing the death penalty. Ah, that's what I thought. Yeah. We all knew that so, was happen. yeah. So he is charged with uh, thirteen murder counts, primarily in Sacramento and is it Tulare County? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he is also charged with eighty-eight rapes. Wow. Um, and well, let's see, sixty-two other crimes attributed over the years to assailants. Variously known in California as the Visalia Ransacker, Original Night Stalker, Diamond Knot Killer, and then obviously the Golden State Killer. So, and the East Area Rapist, which is interestingly, they didn't. Good. Wrap it up. Put that guy away and like end that chapter. Don't make the the public, you know, have to present and pay for a huge drawn out case. And it would be a very long and expensive trial. So that is definitely good. And I hope that it brings some closure to the families of the victims and the survivors themselves. So I wonder just wanted if, to bring that I up. wonder if he'll make a statement and be like, hey, yeah, I did this. You know what I mean? That could be part of the arrangement, right? Like with a BTK had to stand up and, t- and do and talk about all of his murders. Yeah. It could be part of the arrangement that he has to stand up and do or sit in his wheelchair because he wants to pretend like, like he's like he's disabled physically. Now. Yeah, even though like apparently lar, right before he was lar. arrested, he was like, <laughs> yeah, doing all like working on a motorcycle and doing all kind of stuff. But um, yeah, that could be that would be interesting if they included that as part of his plea deal. Interesting. Yeah, and that HBO show uh, on the Golden State Killer, based on Michelle McNamara's book, is coming out, I believe, in July. And I believe that's going to be called I'll Be Gone in the Dark as well, which was a fabulous book. So I'm excited to watch that as well. But anyways. Those types of cases are just so fascinating because it's unbelievable to me that, first of all, somebody that's that diabolical could just blend so seamlessly into society Mm -hmm. and never get caught and he was such an unknown serial killer in terms of like he wasn't one of the big ones but he was one of the most prolific and i remember i think the first time i ever read about him honestly was michelle mcnamara's blog and um and 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 i just remember honestly thinking this guy will never get caught. We will never know who this is. And then her book comes out, and then he, I read the book right before he got arrested. Yeah. Because there was a very short time period of when the book was released and when he was arrested. And so I read the book right before he got arrested, and it gave you an eerie feeling to read about all of that stuff. And and she did such a fabulous job with that book, and, and unfortunately also you know ended up passing away before she completed the book. But 
it's very, yeah, I, that was always one I thought would never get solved. And so I'm very, very glad that they were able to solve that. I also struggle with the concept that someone could do that much damage and do so many crimes and then just stop. Mm-hmm. Like, how do they just stop? Or did he stop? And that's the other thing we don't know. Yeah, we and don't when know. when did he stop? You know what I mean? Because I, I honestly doubt he's mm-hmm. going to be truthful about that. Yeah. Well, and that may also be part of his plea deal is he has to be entirely truthful and forthcoming. And if they find other crimes, then they couldn't put the death penalty back on the table, you yeah. know. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what all comes out as a result of this plea deal. But that should be happening at the end of this month. And he just looks like he could be somebody's grandpa. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. He actually kind of looks like my grandpa. <laughs> my my oh, really? It's just like, what? Is I was gonna say it? he looks like some, like a really um, grumpy grandpa, like one that you're kind of afraid of. That's what he looks like to yeah, me. Yeah, no, not the one that got um, the got put to death, but the my yeah, actually the other. my great yeah. grandpa, my mom's the one that you knew. My mom's mother's father. Okay, and he actually was a war veteran and lost his one of his legs. And he just looks so much oh, wow. like this guy, kind of that grumpy, grizzly, yeah. like he had the, the mm-hmm. really short hair and interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, I guess we'll see how that whole thing comes to an end once the actual trial yeah. gets over. But yeah, maybe we could do like a two hour episode on him because oh <laughs> that's how long it's, it would take to cover that. At least. I so hesitate to do that case because everybody and their grandpa it's a bear. has done it. And it is just so extensive and so huge. And there's so many little details yeah. that like I I wouldn't want to have to present that case. <laughs> it's a it's a bear of a, of a story for so sure. Maybe you, you could do it, but I don't know if I want to tackle that kind of a thing. That's a lot. Lots to take on. It sounds like a solid three-parter, so I don't know. For real. <laughs> we'll see how I feel. Yeah. So. But anyway, yeah, so so after the current events, we're going to go back in time a little bit. And I'm actually in Birmingham right now. I came home for a couple weeks to visit my family and my friends and things like that. And uh, I was kind of inspired to to do this story i've been wanting to do it for a while because we had discussed doing you know sarah you are going to do your washington seattle based you know stories and i needed obviously to do mine and so this is going to be kind of my first entry in the alabama series um and it is also probably going to be the heaviest i mean keeping in mind that like washington has a lot of serial killers washington state and right but it's easy to kind of jump in, well, easier for me to kind of jump in and tackle those and deal with it because they're, they're pretty straightforward. But I think when you mm-hmm. start to talk about cases that happen in a lot of the South, then you end up getting into some deeper mm-hmm. social issues that often come into play with those. And I think that's why it's taken us so long to kind of jump into this because there there's some heavy stuff involved in this, even without the activities that are going on right now. So, yeah. So... You know, I've said it since day one, you know, I grew up in Birmingham and specifically I grew up in the suburbs of Birmingham and we learned all the way through school about the role that the city played in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And I think kind of the difference between growing up in 
a city that is currently, you know, that was involved in the in the civil rights movement versus learning about it maybe in Seattle or some, you know, or we, you know, friends that grew up in San Diego or anywhere that, that didn't actually grow up as part of this movement. I think there's a tendency to think that that was a time that was frozen in history, that it is not a like a, a living, breathing thing and that you learn about it and then well, you learn that the civil rights movement happened and then Birmingham, you don't learn about Birmingham anymore. So you kind of, people always assume whenever I moved to San Diego, you know, that that was just history and that that was not um, an everyday thing. But we, you know, we, as part of school and elementary school, and middle school, we toured the civil rights museum downtown and we got to see exhibits of the buses that were bombed and the freedom riders movement and you know, we saw the recreation of the jail cell when Martin Luther King wrote the letter from the Birmingham jail. And you see all these things, the living history of the city, but you also kind of never really know what your friends or classmates' parents or grandparents, the role that they played in the civil rights movement, which side they were on, you know, if any. And at least kind of where I grew up, it was, it you didn't ask those questions. Um, I certainly did not grow up with a lot of black people in my hometown, and it was kind of always a question that you didn't want to know the answer to kind of a thing, you know. So one of the things I remember learning, which, you know, I've mentioned before on the show, is that the city of Birmingham in the 1960s had a nickname that defined the racial, racial tension of the time, and that nickname was Bombingham. So that is what we're going to be talking about today. And in order to understand how the city got this nickname, however, we we first need to discuss the history of Birmingham prior to the Civil Rights Movement. And this is actually something I didn't know. So Birmingham was founded in 1871, which is after the Civil War, which is interesting. And it was founded by a real estate group that was selling lots near the planned crossing of two railroads. So the Alabama and Chattanooga Railroad and the South and North Railroad. And the site near the crossing was important because nearby there were deposits of iron ore, coal, and limestone, which are the main raw materials that are used to make steel. And Birmingham is actually one of the only places in the world where significant amounts of all three of these materials can be found together. So it's very unusual to find all of these together in enough amounts to actually make and manufacture steel um, in the same area. And that is why Birmingham kind of became known as the Steel City. So Birmingham was named after the Industrial Center of England, obviously Birmingham, England. And the city was hit pretty hard by the Great Depression. But the wartime demand for steel in World War II led to an economic boom for the city, and this was a time of significant growth. But obviously, like many places in the South and across America, obviously it was a very segregated city as well. And because of the availability of these raw materials, Birmingham was a big mining city, and it was actually called the Pittsburgh of the South. Hmm. And where you have mines, you have dynamite. And the white population of Birmingham was militant about keeping black residents from moving into their quote-unquote white neighborhoods. And specifically in the Smithfield neighborhood, there was a street called Center Street that was kind of considered the color line with the white residents living to the west side of the street and the black residents living to the east side of the street. But black residents 
began trying to move to the west side of the street and buying houses on the west side of the street. And local members of the Ku Klux Klan began a terror campaign of bombing black homes and churches. And this initially started with the burning of front doors of the houses that the the black residents were moving into. And then Klan members would kind of stand out in the street and fire shots, gunshots into the air around the houses. And ultimately, this escalated into dynamite bombings. Wow. And this became so pervasive that one neighborhood was nicknamed Dynamite Hill, and the city became known as Bombingham. Wow. And beginning in the 19 in the late 1940s and continuing for about 20 years there were 40 plus unsolved bombings and did these involve deaths as well Primary, it's mostly property damage okay and one of the most frequent targets of these bombings was NAACP attorney Arthur Shores who actually lived on Center Street And Shores took on many cases challenging Birmingham's segregated city ordinances. And he actually was the attorney, one of the attorneys who helped integrate the University of Alabama, leading to the attempted enrollment of Authorine Lucy in 1956. She was actually admitted as a graduate student in library studies, but she ended up withdrawing from the university. Mm -hmm. This also led to the standoff with Governor George Wallace standing in the doorway of Foster Auditorium trying to prevent Vivian Malone and James Hood from enrolling in 1963. Um, That is something that you probably learned in your history books and... um, that building Foster Auditorium still stands on the University of Alabama's campus, and there is a plaque um, commemorating, not commemorating is not the right word, but there is a plaque on the building that does say where this took place and that the National Guard did come and require George Wallace to let these two black students enroll. Wow. So Arthur Shores, his house was bombed twice, and according to his daughter, who is Last I checked, I don't know how recent the article I read was, but she is a Birmingham judge, or at least was a Birmingham judge. Um, According to her, uh, her mother actually found a third case of dynamite in their garden, but she was actually able to remove it before it detonated. Wow. So you also had Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, and he was a civil rights leader of the time and actually was also a co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And in December 1956, after the Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation of Montgomery's buses was illegal, Shuttlesworth announced that he was going to test Birmingham's enforcement of the desegregation transportation laws the day after Christmas. So on Christmas Day, on Christmas night, actually, his house, which adjoined the Bethel Baptist Church, where he was also the pastor, was bombed. He was thrown into the basement of his house, and his house was completely destroyed. It ended up collapsing, but somehow he and his family were unharmed. And the church was also bombed, and its windows were shattered. And the church would be bombed again in 1958, but fortunately the smoking dynamite was discovered and thrown into the street before it went off, and it left a crater in the middle of the street. Jeez. J.B. Stoner, who was a white supremacist and founder of the National States Rights Party, approached two Birmingham detectives to claim responsibility for the bombing and actually demanded $2,000 in payment for it. What? Indicating that this may have been done at the request of some members of the Birmingham police. This evidence was 
conveniently ignored by Birmingham's Commissioner of Public Safety, Bull Connor. And if his name is familiar to you, that is because you've probably seen the images of the police with dogs and fire hoses attacking children during the 1963 civil rights campaign. And Bethel Baptist Church was actually bombed a third and final time in 1962 when the windows at the church and the adjoining home were shattered from an explosion across the streets. And Pastor A.D. King, who was actually the brother of Martin Luther King Jr., was a pastor in Birmingham, and he had his house destroyed by two bombs that went off within minutes of each other on May 11, 1963. And he actually said later that he was working on his Mother's Day sermon for the following Sunday, and he just kind of had an urge to take his family out into the backyard, and this was right before the bombs went off. So... His house wow. was completely destroyed, so, you know, there is every possibility that people would have been killed during this explosion. And just the day before, the city had actually agreed to release the 2,500 protesters, 2,000 of whom were children, who had been arrested in the attempt to desegregate the lunch counters, restrooms, drinking fountains, and department store fitting rooms as part of the Birmingham campaign. And this is the campaign that brought the cruelty of the Birmingham Police Department to the world's attention because this is when the pictures of the children being sprayed with the fire hoses and attacked by German shepherds were published in newspapers across the world. And there was actually a former mayor he talks about in Spike Lee's documentary, Four Little Girls. He was not the mayor at the time, but I believe he worked for the mayor. The mayor was in Tokyo, Japan, and mm -hmm. the Tokyo newspapers were reporting on the Birmingham campaign and the violence of Bull Connor's police. And that was kind of when things had to change. So they kind of started saying, okay, now we can't hide this now. They're, they're, they're seeing this on the front page of their newspapers in Tokyo. So shortly after these, these pictures were published, Bull Connor was actually removed from office as the um, commissioner of public safety after serving 17 terms. So there was some kind of change coming through from this. But the same day as A.D. King's house was bombed, the A.G. Gaston Motel was bombed. And A.G. Gaston was a successful African-American businessman, and some sources call him the first black millionaire in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And he operated many businesses in the Birmingham area that served black people because there, this was the time when you had to have those differences. You had to have black-owned businesses that would serve black people because white-owned businesses, which were the majority of businesses in, in Birmingham and in Alabama in general, would not serve black residents. So he, specifically his motel, was one of the only places in Birmingham where, where black people could get a motel room. And he also provided his hotel as a meeting place and a planning area for the civil rights movement. And two bombs were placed near room 30, which is where Martin Luther King Jr. often stayed when he was in town. And he was not in town at the time, but they were placed outside of his room and these bombs destroyed most of the hotel's facade. Wow. So like you, like you asked previously up to this point, none of the bombings had resulted in the deaths of their targets. They generally only cause property damage, which is kind of in line with the goals of the terrorist actions of the Klan, right? It, it, it wasn't necessarily that they wanted to kill black people in explosions. Certainly they didn't have any issues with killing black people, as evidenced by the many lynchings 
but killing them in explosions was not the goal. The goal was to get them to move out of their neighborhoods. The goal was to prevent them from planning protests that were disrupting the city. The goal was to scare them. So, well, I'm sure there was also an element of financial loss as well. Like figuring that if you can give enough, create enough financial loss that they will be poor enough that they won't be able to live in the area or they will have to abandon their, their business and their middle-class lifestyle and get out. Absolutely. And many, and many people did that many people you know, their house was bombed and they, they packed up and they left. If they didn't leave the neighborhood, they left Birmingham or they left Alabama entirely, you know, so it was an effective bombing campaign. Did people have home insurance back then? And I don't know very many people that without that in place that could have their house Mm -hmm. bombed, lose everything they own and still be fine financially. Right. Exactly. And you have the question of if there's an insurance company willing to insure a black owner, black homeowner, you know, so you're you're exactly right. There's a lot there's a lot that that went into um, the reasons behind behind this this terror campaign. But like I said, primarily it had they had caused uh, property damage. But all of that changed on on September 15th, 1963. So. The 16th Street Baptist Church was the first black church in Birmingham. It actually opened in 1873, so just two years after the city was founded. And during the Birmingham campaign of 1963, the 16th Street Baptist Church served as a rallying point for black demonstrators. It is located directly across the street from Kelly Ingram Park, which is the site of many of the protests and rallies of the civil rights movement. And it is also the location of the previously mentioned dogs and fire hoses at the hands of Bull Connor. On September 15th, this was Youth Sunday, and this was um, once a month the, the head pastor would ask the youth members of the church to lead the services and, and perform, you know, work at the church to kind of give them an agency and make them feel welcome. They, they have some kind of, you know, they have an investment in their church. So there's a book I read called While the World Watched, and it is by Carolyn Maul McKinstry. And she actually was a member of the 16th Street Baptist Church, and she was attending on September 15th, 1963. She would, in her book, she talks about how the church was kind of their safe place. It's where she spent a lot of her time outside of school. It was one of the few places where her parents would let her go without kind of supervision because they felt it was safe for her to be there. She was very involved. She also worked part-time as a secretary. And on the morning of September 15th, she brought her younger brothers to their Sunday school classes, and she went upstairs to the office where she was going to kind of take over the role of secretary for the day. Mm-hmm. And the woman who was working the secretary, you know, working the secretary desk was reporting that the phone was just ringing off the hook and she didn't, you know, these phone calls were just driving her nuts. She couldn't get the rest of her work done. And when Carolyn asked what the phone calls were, the woman said, I don't know, these people just, these crazy people calling saying they're going to bomb the church. But and you don't take that seriously. Well, that's the thing is how many times does that happen? You know, is this something that they got a lot of phone calls and she doesn't Carolyn doesn't really say in the book that this is a common or uncommon occurrence. 
So it kind of did sound like this is something that maybe that they, it happened before. People would call and they would say that, you know, call, kind of call in a hoax or, you know, some, any kind of any number of things. It just didn't sound like it was a stop everything kind of a thing. Because, again, bombings in Birmingham were very frequent. So I imagine bomb threats were even more frequent. I'm sure they couldn't call the police either and be like, no. hey, this, yeah, so they're. That must have been very challenging to have to to determine whether it's a real, legit threat or not. Yeah, absolutely. And there's an NPR article I, I read earlier this morning talking about how one of the residents of Dynamite Hill, you know, he would say it was real funny how fast the police were, you know, could drive when they were leaving after throwing the bombs from their unmarked cars. So... Yeah, calling the police because you got a bomb threat doesn't isn't going to be the answer, you know. Yeah. So, so you know the the secretary initially identified them as prankster calls, but then, so so Cynthia she goes about about her the rest of her duties. You know she's going around and collecting the rolls from Sunday school, and then because during the the eleven o'clock sermon that the um the pastor is going to have her stand up and she's going to read the numbers from you know from how many people were at Sunday school and how many people donated to the church that day and things like that. So she's kind of preparing to do all of this stuff. And she, she goes downstairs and she sees four of her friends who are in the downstairs bathroom. They're getting ready to go to their Sunday school class and they're going to sing in the choir. And she goes in there, she says, hi, you know, she checks her makeup and things like that. And then she leaves and she goes back up the stairs and she gets a phone call and she rushes to pick up the receiver and puts it to her ear. But before she could say hello, a male voice just simply says three minutes and then hung up. Wow. And that was at 1019. And at 1022, the bomb went off. Um, it is believed that the bomb was made up of 15 sticks of dynamite and it blew a hole measuring seven feet in diameter in the church's rear wall and a crater five feet wide and two feet deep into the ladies basement lounge destroying the rear steps of the church and blowing a passing motorist out of his car okay so 15 sticks of dynamite mm -hmm. and the hole is only five by seven but does so the picture, seem... well, so dynamite is not really particularly powerful. Like it's not uh, in terms of explosives, it's not particularly powerful. Um, and the and 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 I have pictures of the 16th Street Baptist Church that I'm going to send to you. And it's it's a sturdy building. Um, okay. I mean, it is made of 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 some thick stone bricks. So it's a pretty sturdy building. But it did. I mean, you could. There, there's also you know plenty of pictures of the of the the damage and destruction and. This area of the church was, I mean, it was, it was all, like this one area, while it didn't damage the front of the church or, you know, the main, the main um, sanctuary, it, this, this area was kind of completely destroyed. So essentially 15 sticks of dynamite are like some big ass M80s, really. Um, like yeah. Yeah. Because I would think that 15 sticks of dynamite would do some major damage, but now... 
hearing about what you're saying, the damage that created, it becomes even more evident to me that this was more about harassing and manipulating and making people fearful rather mm-hmm. than intending to kill people to prove a point. So this is something that was specifically designed in a very, very uh, planned way mm-hmm. to create chaos rather than to kill people. So interesting that you say that and hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. Um, so, you know, it is believed that this one of the bomb that this bomb was placed near the rear stairwell. Um, I have looked for pictures of the church before the bombing to find the stairwell. The stairwell is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just downtown yesterday and I was actually at the church and the stairwell is not there anymore. So I was actually trying to find pictures of the stairwell. I, I cannot find any. So I've never actually seen what the church looks like before the bombing. Wow. But, you know, the, according to the, to the, the people who were there at church, the explosion sh- did shake the entire building. Um, and wow, it did, I would imagine. yeah, and it completely collapsed the basement restroom where there were five young girls. Like what kind of sick, depraved individual bombs a church? So like, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. So like I said, this was a meeting place and this was a planning place for many of the protesters. And so I think it was more to bomb like a protester's headquarters than it was to bomb a church. This is about a psychological warfare. Yes. This is like at the deepest level. Yes, absolutely. And cars parked on the street were just completely destroyed. Windows of properties located more than two blocks from the church were also damaged. All but one of the church's stained glass windows were destroyed in the explosion. And the, the only stained glass window that was not completely destroyed was a picture of Christ leading a group of young children. And the only part of the, of the window that was blown out was Christ's face. Like there's pictures of it. It's yeah. It's, it's kind of so crazy. It's kind of eerie. So tell me though, is the FBI involved at the, in this stage of the game with any of this? Kind of, they know about it. (laughs) They will get involved after the church bombing. Very, they will very heavily get involved after the church bombing, but um, they are quote unquote involved and quote unquote investigating. But it's not that they're sending agents from Washington D.C. down to investigate these bombings. There is a Birmingham office of the FBI. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that there was at the time. I know there is now, so I assume there was at the time, and I assume that you know you have people from Birmingham working in it. Well, I think that. Knowing the FBI and the composition of the FBI then and even now, you've got a bunch of middle-aged white men running things. So <laughs> it I'm is, sure you probably know the outcome when that is the case. It That certainly was the case then. That was who they hired. That was who they recruited. Um, it has gotten significantly better in terms of diversity, but you are correct. In 1963, it was almost exclusively white men who are um, FBI agents and investigators. An estimated 2,000 black people converged on the scene in the hours following the explosion. And this explosion... How do they know it was done? Like, 
How do they know it was done? Like, how do they know there weren't other bombs or other bombs coming? Like, that had to have been absolutely horrifying. They didn't. So there was a big rush to get everybody out of the out of the church in case there were other bombs that was that were near the church. But yeah, you're right. They did not know that there were not other bombs that were set to go off when like the first responders or when people gathered. They didn't know. You can't know. These have got to be some incredibly, incredibly brave and strong people. Because I think my first inclination, if I was in a community where I was being bombed and like there was a threat at any moment that I could die from something like an explosion with dynamite, I would leave. Well, I think that a lot of the people that you hear from in the stories and the documentaries and the books that you read and I mean, there's people in Birmingham today who were there, you know, and and they were fighting for something bigger and they knew that people would die in order for them to reach their greater goal. They knew that Fred Shuttlesworth had been preaching that since the 50s. I'm sure there was also something where they knew that wherever they went, mm-hmm. something similar might happen. Right. So there's really nowhere to run to when you are the person that everybody looks down on mm-hmm. and treats and with an, an inequality. Exactly. And one individual, like I said, there's 2,000 people that converged on the scene and one individual later would say that he saw a solitary white man whom he recognized as Robert Edward Chambliss, who was a known Mm -hmm. member of the Ku Klux Klan standing alone and motionless at a police barricade. And according to his, to this man's later, later testimony, Chambliss was standing looking down toward the church, like a firebug watching his fire. So, like I said, there were five young girls in the bathroom. Were they okay? What happened with them? Four of them died. Oh, Addie geez. Mae Collins was 14. Carol Denise McNair, she went by Denise, was 11. Carol Robertson was 14. And Cynthia Wesley was also 14. Addie Mae's youngest sister, Sarah, she was 12, was also in the bathroom. But she was able to survive. She had 21 pieces of glass embedded in her face and was blinded in one eye. Jesus. And she would later recall that in the moments immediately before the explosion, she watched her sister Addie tying her dress sash. And Addie's, Addie Mae's older sister, 16-year-old Junie Collins, would later recall that shortly before the explosion, she had been sitting in the church basement reading the Bible and had observed Addie Mae Collins tying the dress sash of Carol Denise McNair before Junie went upstairs to the ground floor of the church. So they were basically just kind of primping and being teenage girls in the bathroom, just getting ready to go to their Sunday school class. And when they were found... I can't, I can't even imagine. The explosion was so intense that one of the girls' bodies was decapitated and so badly mutilated in the explosion that her body could be only identified through her clothing and a ring. I believe that Cynthia Wesley was the one who was decapitated. Another victim was killed by a piece of mortar embedded in her skull. That was Denise McNair. And Reverend John Cross, who was the pastor at the time, he recollected in 2001 that the girls' bodies were stacked on top of each other, clung together. 
So, like I said, according to one witness, Robert uh, Edward Chambliss was seen at the at the scene of the crime, looking at the church, watching it burn. Initially, the police believed that the bomb was thrown from a passing car, but just five days later, the FBI was able to confirm that the explosion had been caused by a device that was purposely planted beneath the steps to the church, close to the woman's lounge. A section of wire and remnants of red plastic were discovered uh, by these steps and is believed these were part of a timing device. Um, and within days, investigators began to focus on focus their attention on a KKK group called the Cahaba Boys. And I read another book about this a long time ago. Well, maybe a year ago. But in the location, it talks about these this group of men, the Cahaba Boys, and it talks about where they would meet. And it is a place that I have driven. They met under an overpass by the Cahaba River. And it is a place I have driven past and driven over countless times. I mean, it is it is an area where I was often very close to and it is just it's just shocking to me that you know 50 60 years ago this was a meeting place for a group of men that planned the 16th street baptist church bombing the members there were there were fewer than 30 members of this cahaba boys group but four of the members thomas blanton jr herman cash robert chambliss and bobby cherry were believed to have been the ones who planned and carried out the bombing. Witness statements attested to a group of white men in a turquoise 1957 Chevy who had been seen near the church in the early hours of September 15th, like 2 and 3 a.m. These witness statements indicated that a white man had exited the car and walked toward the steps of the church, and it is believed that this was either Bobby Cherry or Robert Chambliss. On September 26, 1963, Chambliss was questioned by the FBI and was indicted on charges of illegally purchasing and transporting dynamite. He and two acquaintances, John Hall and Charles Cagle, were each convicted in state court um, for illegally possessing and transporting dynamite, and they received a $100 fine and a suspended 180-day jail sentence. Doesn't seem like... <laughs> like any sport any form of punishment was intended with that well you have no you well you have members of the police who are in the clan so they're not interested in solving this case they're not actually interested in in making known who is responsible for this so on may 13th 1965 the, the FBI formally named Blanton, Cash, Chambliss, and Cherry as the per perpetrators of the bombing, and they named specifically Robert Chambliss as the likely ringleader. But there were no federal charges, so they had to rely on the state to charge these four men. Yeah, like, that's going to happen. Yeah. So in 1968, the FBI formally closed their investigation into the bombing without filing federal charges against any of their named suspects. And the files were actually sealed on the order of J. Edgar Hoover. But by 1965, a, a later report said by 1965, the FBI had the four suspects um, and they knew that they were all Klan members, but witnesses were reluctant to talk and they did not have a lot of physical evidence. 
And at the time, information from their surveillance was not admissible in court because their surveillance primarily included a wiretap from somebody who, who they had working as an informant and they didn't want to um, bust their informant yet. Wow. Yeah. So the bombing remained unsolved until January 1971. Bill Baxley was elected the attorney general of the state of Alabama, and he campaigned on reopening the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. And within one week of being sworn into office, he he researched the original police files and discovered that, shockingly, the original documents from the Birmingham PD were mostly worthless. Not surprising. Right. And in 1971, he was able to build trust with key witnesses, obviously, who were less reluctant now to testify um, than they would have been in the first trial for the possession of dynamite. Some witnesses identified Chambliss as the individual who had placed the bomb beneath the church and that Chambliss had actually been known in and around Birmingham as Dynamite Bob. Oh, my God. So What What a hillbilly name. Yes. And so... After Baxley, Bill Baxley requested access to the original FBI files, he learned that the evidence that the FBI collected had not even been revealed to the local prosecutors in Birmingham. And while that might be kind of shocking, when you actually think about it, it does make sense because you also, the FBI knew that they wouldn't be able to trust the prosecutors in Birmingham either. So in order to kind of, I guess protect against double jeopardy in this situation they decided to withhold the evidence and not give it to the prosecutors in 1965 because if the prosecutors brought the case against these four men there is a very good chance that they would have been acquitted by an all-white jury you know so not surprising yeah, so so obviously Bill Baxley, when he first learned this, he was pissed off, but then he kind of came around and understood why that was the case. So on November 14th, 1977, Robert Chambliss, then age 73, was indicted by a grand jury and charged with four counts of murder, one for each child in the bombing. However... At a pretrial hearing, the judge ruled that the defendant could only be tried on one count of murder, that of Denise McNair, and that the three counts of murder would would remain, but that he would not be charged in relation to these three deaths. So I guess that means he maybe wanted to um, separate them out in case he was acquitted for the murder of Denise McNair and so that he could be tried for individually for the other three as well. Or maybe he just was a buddy and didn't want him to go to trial on four murders and possibly get the death penalty. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, but you can get death penalty for one murder just as easily as you can get it for four. Well, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's an assessment of the jury. I'm not sure. There's no, there's no reason, there's no explanation of why he separated them. It, it could be because of wanting to convict him for at least one of them, or it could be because they were buddies. I mean, and, and that's the thing about Birmingham is... It, it's 50-50. Yeah. You know? Not surprising. So, yeah. And so, obviously, he pleaded not guilty. 
And he said that, yes, he did purchase the dynamite just two weeks before the bombing, but he gave it to another Klan member, Gary Thomas Rowe. And interestingly, Gary Thomas Rowe is the FBI informant. Huh. So, um, yeah. So, and it's, he's not squeaking clean either. It's believed by many people that he was allowed to commit crimes related to Klan activities with the tacit permission of the FBI and that they were not going to stop him or indict him on these crimes. What? Some people believe he actually committed murder while working as an FBI informant. But he was a key witness and informant in the in the, in the trial of um, some of these, these men. So essentially they used this guy as an informant and they would let him do what he wanted in exchange for him providing them information about other crimes. Yep. Ugh. This is the complicated history of Birmingham. Like, the, I mean, it just... Like, and this is just... Yeah, but if you imagine Birmingham is just one place where this is happening. I am sure it was happening mm -hmm. in cities across the country. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just, like, at this point, I like, I, I wrote a script, you know, up until the bombing. And at this point, I'm just talking to you, and like, now from my memory. Because this is, this is just what you learn, kind of a thing. Like, this is just the way things were. Yeah, but this is not so, something we learned about in history class, being from... Right northern cities in the u.s we learned mm -hmm. about the civil rights movement we learned about martin luther king we learned about mm -hmm. malcolm x but we didn't learn about stuff like this mm -hmm. yep exactly so elizabeth cobbs was one of the first female reverends in alabama she was Meth a methodist pastor she actually was also Robert Chambliss's niece, and she was one of the key witnesses to testify for the prosecution in his trial. She stated that her uncle had repeatedly told her that he had been engaged in what he referred to as a one-man battle against blacks since the 1940s. Since the 40s, really? Because I'm pretty sure since the 40s. slavery, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the slaves were freed in the 1800s. I'm sure it was going on a lot longer than that. <laughs> but his his path was since the 40s. Okay. His one-man battle. His one-man battle since the 40s. And that on the day before the bombing, he told her that he had enough dynamite in his possession to flatten half of Birmingham. And that he also said that one week after the bombing, she watched Chambliss... She, she saw him watching a news article talking about the four girls killed in the bombing and that he had said it wasn't meant to hurt anybody. It didn't go off when it was supposed to. Anyway. So. Because I'm pretty sure he called and told her exactly what time, didn't he? Right. So to your point of it seems like this was a bomb that was not meant to hurt anybody, that it was placed in a kind of an area that not many, very many people went there's arguments for, for both sides of that because obviously part of his defense and and I've seen it as kind of an accepted fact is that, yes, this bomb, because it was placed around 2 and 3 a.m., according to witnesses, that this bomb was supposed to go off in the very early hours of the Sunday morning and that the timing device was defective. And that's why it went off at 1022 when the church was filled with people and that it was put near a back stairwell so that it wouldn't harm people but the guy called but then you have the phone calls how do you how do you explain yeah. the phone calls so yeah, I'm it. right 
in his closing arguments, um, Bill Baxley, you know, did acknowledge that that Robert Chambliss was not the sole perpetrator of the bombing and that he expressed, oh, okay, this is the answer to that question. Um, he, he expressed that the state was unable to request a death penalty because the death penalty had been repealed between 1963 and 1978. So interesting. Interesting, right? Um, I think is the death penalty on the table in Alabama now? Oh my God, yes. Okay. So it's interesting though that they had these repealing of the death penalty during these certain periods in the U.S. history. I know a couple states are like that where they repealed it during a certain time period and then they put it back on the table. And I'm wondering if that has to do with these cases of racial violence. Well, it was federally appealed or repealed. Right. The Supreme Court struck down... If it yeah. has to do with these cases, because there were so many of them, mm-hmm. and I'm sure the people in power didn't want these white men to be mm-hmm. put to death. Entirely possible. Entirely possible. So the jury deliberated for six hours. And they found Robert Chambliss guilty of the murder of Denise McNair, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. And at his sentencing, he stood up and said, Judge, Your Honor, all I can say is God knows I've never killed anybody, never have bombed anything in my life. I didn't bomb that church. So they just called him Dynamite Bob for um, jokes. Hmm. Robert Chambliss died in 1985, still serving his life sentence. And he was confined to a, sol- to a solitary cell to protect him from attacks. And up until his death, he repeatedly proclaimed his innocence, insisting Gary Thomas Rowe was the actual perpetrator. So. What do you think? I do, I do not think Gary Thomas Rowe was involved in the, um, in the bombing. So you think it was, he was the one that did it and he was the one that was punished and all of that was legit? I think he was one of the four. Yes. Yeah. Um, So in 1995, the FBI reopened an investigation as part of a coordinated effort between local, state, and federal governments to review cold cases from the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And in 2000, the FBI publicly announced their findings that the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing had been committed by four members of the Klan splinter group known as the Cahaba Boys, and they named four individuals— who, like I said earlier, were Thomas Blanton Jr., um, Herman Cash, uh, Robert Edward Chambliss, and Bobby Cherry. And by the time of this announcement, obviously, like I said, Robert Chambliss had died. Herman Cash had also died. But Thomas Blanton and Bobby Cherry were still alive and were subsequently arrested. And they were both indicted, and the prosecution originally wanted to try them both together. But Bobby Cherry's trial was delayed for um, so they could carry out a court-ordered psychiatric evaluation. And it was determined that he had a, an impaired mind due to vascular dementia. And so he was ruled incompetent to stand trial or assist in his own defense. And then ultimately, in, in 2002, it was, he was determined to be uh, mentally competent. Uh, to stand trial. So Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr. was brought to trial uh, in April 2001. He pleaded not guilty. And 
Obviously, you know, the same information, the same witnesses, the same prosecution. And a former Klansman named Mitchell Burns had become a paid FBI uh, informant. And he had secretly recorded several conversations with Blanton in which he gloated when talking about the bombing and boasted that the police would never catch him when he bombed another church. Wow. The most damning piece of evidence was an audio recording secretly taped by the FBI in June of 1964, which was probably recorded by um, the informant, Gary Rowe. And Blanton was recorded discussing his involvement in the bombing with his wife, who can be heard accusing her husband of conducting an affair with a woman and um, two nights before the bombing. And so this is actually part of the Diane McWhorter book that I read last year. And he's, he tries to explain to his wife that he was not with this mistress, but he was um, at a meeting with other Klansmen on a bridge above the Cahaba River and said, you got to have a meeting to plan a bomb. Okay. So his trial lasted for one week, and the jury deliberated for two and a half hours before finding him guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. Uh, and he was also sentenced to life imprisonment. And he is still alive as of 2019. And he was actually prosecuted by current Alabama Senator Doug Jones. Yeah, but he got 40 years of freedom after committing that freaking crime, and then he gets to spend his elderly years in prison when he would be sick and not be able Mm -hmm. to enjoy it anyway. It just doesn't seem fair. Yep. And Bobby Cherry was brought to trial in May of 2002. He obviously did plead not guilty and did not testify on his own behalf. And he would also be convicted. The jury deliberated for seven hours, and he was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder and also sentenced to life in prison. At his sentencing, he Bobby Cherry stood up, motioned to the prosecutors, and said, the, this whole bunch lied through this whole thing, meaning the trial. I told the truth. I don't know why I'm going to jail for nothing. I haven't done anything. So even in 2002, he is still uh, maintaining his innocence aggressively um, and still not showing any remorse. And he died um, in 2004 while incarcerated, and he died of cancer. So the only one who is still alive is Thomas Blanton Jr. And exactly like you said, they got all of this time. And I actually remember, so in 2002, I was graduating high school and so I actually remember when when Thomas Blanton Jr. was convicted, and it didn't feel very big. It felt like, yeah, everybody knew that they did it, and it was, you know, like they got. It's like you said, they got to live their lives while these four young girls didn't get to even grow up. But I guess if you want to call that justice, you can. Mm, no. It's not justice. So the bombings actually did not stop after the 16th Street Baptist Church. They continued on until about 1965 when Birmingham police found a very large package of dynamite outside Mayor Albert Boutwell's residence. And uh, they were able to, I guess, disable it or get rid of it before it exploded and damaged his house. But to my knowledge, the only bombs in this terror campaign that did actually that that did actually result in death was the bombing of the Birmingham the 16th Street Birmingham Baptist Church yeah so that is kind of a very brief 
history of Birmingham, and I was actually just downtown yesterday. I participated in a Juneteenth march, and Kelly Ingram Park, like I said, is directly across the street from the church. They've also built the Civil Rights Museum across the street from the church, and this is part of now a civil rights district. There are many statues and monuments in Kelly Ingram Park. There is a statue of four little girls. They're in their dresses. They are getting ready to go upstairs and go to a church service. Yeah. It's heavy. Yeah, I can imagine. So... I can't think that you would be able to go to something like that or see something like that and not have an emotional, a very, very emotional reaction. I, it's very interesting because when I was little, when I was in, you know, probably up until high school, there was a, there was a music festival in downtown Birmingham every year on Father's Day weekend. It was called City Stages and um, it was a big deal. Everybody went and, it, you know, you walk through these parks, you walk through Kelly Ingram Park, you walk through Lynn Park which is where the Confederate monument was up until a couple weeks back. And, you know, it's interesting to think of now how many times that I walk past these monuments and walk through this park and just treat it um, like an everyday occurrence. You don't pay attention to it, you know, and then and then to be down there yesterday, to be protesting um, and marching for racial equality in Birmingham, Alabama, it, it hits you pretty hard. Yeah, so absolutely. It's interesting to hear some of these stories that we, okay, because as I mentioned earlier, this is not something that we talked about in history mm -hmm. class. This is not something that history books, and I don't know what it's like now. I don't know what's in the history books that are being taught now, yeah. but this is not something, I mean, we learned that there were violent acts that happened and were perpetuated upon people in the southern states mm -hmm. right and some in the northern states as well because I, I don't believe that the kkk exclusively stayed in the southern states i mean i'm sure there was kkk and no the headquarters was in indiana yeah, i'm sure there were northern states that had it problems with that as mm -hmm. well but um it's interesting to hear the stories and from someone who's actually from the area as well Mm -hmm. And and that's why I think it's so very, very important to have these discussions and talk about these sorts of things. And I think it's kind of harkens back to that quote about those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it or yeah. something like that. Do you remember that quote? I don't remember it exactly, but it's so something like that. If we're not learning about these things and if we're not forced to think about them and acknowledge them, then we're never going to be able to get to a point where this country can be truly equal. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for us to have these discussions and for us to talk about these things and bring these things to light so that we can all understand how powerfully sad and emotional and violent and angry some people are. And, and with good reason. Yeah, and I think kind of one of the most shocking things is that, you know, when Bobby Cherry and Thomas Blanton Jr. went to trial in 2000s when I was graduating high school and I had taken history classes on this subject, they are still not remorseful and still angry. No. it's Yeah. I, I yeah. think that's prevalent in a lot of white um, parts of the mm -hmm. country, a lot of white communities, a lot of white individuals that, that's not uncommon. Uh, I think that each and every one of us have a responsibility to educate ourselves, to learn, to acknowledge, to listen, and to do what you can 
to do your part to ensure this doesn't continue to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, how you do that is up to you. But I think that each and every one of us has a responsibility to do something to help make a change. Yeah. I agree. And I'm not going to tell you what that one thing is, but I think that you need, if you're not doing anything, you need to search your heart and figure out what you can do. That's going to make a difference in this world. Absolutely. And I just want to say like, you know, I, I grew up in Birmingham, but I also grew up kind of away from, from downtown Birmingham and in the history. And so you, it was still a field trip to go to the civil rights museum. And I, I don't obviously I don't live in Birmingham anymore, but I have many friends that do. And my friends and I have been talking about going to the Civil Rights Museum and spending more time down there because we have these excellent resources of this living history of our city um, that we just don't take advantage of. Certainly, I don't. I haven't in the past, and I need to start doing that. And I would encourage everybody to well, think- to find a you know some kind of museum or go to the Birmingham the Civil Rights Museum website and you know, look through the history virtually if, if that's what you need to do. But, and it's not just that I would also, you know, your parents, Yeah. like you have, you have a very unique situation in that your father and your parents have experienced yeah. this firsthand. Yeah. So talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents, talk to your community members, go seek these people out and hear their mm-hmm. stories because there is so much rich culture. It's not 100 years ago. It's not 200 years ago. It is recent. Yeah. It is there. And we, people have so many stories. Listen to their stories. Go find mm-hmm. them. Search them out. Because they're everywhere. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's not just Birmingham. It's it's cities across the country. I mean, it's L.A. in the 80s. It's Detroit in the 60s. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's Tulsa in the 20s. I mean, it's, it is literally everywhere. And there's, you will always, no matter where you are, it's Rosewood, you know, in the early 1900s. It's everywhere you are, you will find somebody who has a relative who was part of this. Yep. And I think that as we get farther and farther away from those, those people are starting to pass on. And there's no one mm-hmm. keeping their story. Well, there are people that are telling their stories and people that are writing them down. But that's why I think it is so important to get these oral histories in writing so that we can acknowledge mm-hmm. them, we can study them, we can learn from them. And it is very sad and frightening to me that the, a lot of these people that were involved in these things firsthand are now passing away without their stories being written down and told to others. So go find mm-hmm. those stories, write them down, tell their stories, even if it's your aunt, your uncle, your niece, you know, whoever, your grandpa, your great, great grandpa, and you think that they don't have anything of value because they're an old person and they can't get around too well anymore. That's not the case. They have stories that are very, very important to Mm -hmm. the history of this country that need to be told. Absolutely. We're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day then. With that being said, this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We try to respond back to all emails that are sent to us. That is very important to us. We believe in what you tell us and your suggestions and your comments, and we try to respond to them as best we can. Um, And we listen. If you say you don't like Mm -hmm. certain parts of what we're doing, then we try to change that because ultimately this is not just for our own listening enjoyment. This is to give other people information, to provide things that are going to make them interested, happy, 
um, whatever the case may be for listening to podcasts. We didn't, we don't just do this for ourselves. I mean, some of it we do, yeah. but it's for the <laughs> listening audience. So if you guys tell us that you don't like something, then we're going to try to accommodate or adjust unless it's just outright crazy, which I don't really think we've had any of those suggestions yet, but you never know. <laughs> yeah. In any case, we're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Please shoot us an email. Um, Darcy social media. Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, and we'll be posting um, a lot of pictures from the 1963 um, civil rights movement at the the 16th Street Baptist Church um, in Bombingham. And um, I will also be sending you some pictures, Sarah, that we can post from the pictures I took yesterday. Oh, thank you. That'll be awesome. Yeah. Um, And please join us again next week when we talk more about these sorts of cases and others that we find interesting and that we know you guys will find interesting as well. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Hey, guys, it's Darcy. Since we finished recording this episode, the last remaining bomber of the 16th Street Baptist Church, Tommy Blanton Jr., has since passed away. Blanton died at age 82 in a Jefferson County prison. Doug Jones, who was the prosecutor on that case, released the following statement. Tommy Blanton is responsible for one of the darkest days in Alabama's history, and he will go to his resting place without ever having atoned for his actions or apologizing to the countless people he hurt. The fact that, after the bombing, he went on to remain a free man for nearly four decades speaks to a broader systemic failure to hold him and his accomplices accountable. Thank you.